Well, we're starting an Advent series this morning. Normally, during an Advent series, whatever angle the series is taking, you know, whether that's focusing on messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah, or whether that's focusing on the women in Jesus' genealogy, or focusing on the gifts of the wise men, or whatever, all Advent series, typically, whatever angle they're taking, they're kind of moving towards the birth of Jesus, and then they culminate with the birth of our Savior, oftentimes on a Christmas morning service. This year, we're actually starting with the conception and the birth of our Lord. And the reason that we're starting here, instead of finishing here, is because we're taking a chronological look at the earthly life of Jesus as he prepared for his public ministry. So we're going to be looking at some of the major early life events in the life of Jesus, the earliest of which is the conception and birth of Jesus, which is why we're starting there today. So just to be clear, Jesus' existence did not begin at his conception. In fact, Jesus' existence didn't begin at all. He doesn't have a beginning. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, begotten but not created, and he was with God in the beginning, before creation. But his earthly life as a human had a beginning. It began with a miraculous conception, and that is what we're going to consider now. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke for this whole entire Advent series, and we'll look at Luke in chapter 1 and start in verse 26. Luke 1 and verse 26. I'll be reading through verse 35. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord, and let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Holy Father, we come to you this morning with hearts of faith, trust in you, believing that you are our Good Father, that you have spoken to us in your holy word and the things contained therein are true and profitable for our understanding and for our faith and for application to our lives. And so I pray that you would help us once again as we look at and consider this well-known story, this true story, that you'd help us to see it with fresh eyes. You would help us to prepare room in our hearts for your 
presence and in our church. I pray that our hearts and our church, our families, our homes would be hospitable places for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, the story begins with a character that would be familiar to anyone who was familiar with their Old Testament. It's a character from a story that we just had told to us so very well by Omari. It's a character that shows up in the book of Daniel. Gabriel. Gabriel, if you remember the story from the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel was sent to Daniel. Daniel had a number of visions that came to him in a dream, and he needed to make sense of those and needed a divine interpreter, a a heavenly interpreter of the visions. Um, Not divine, I shouldn't have used that word. Gabriel is an angel, he's not divine, but he's a heavenly interpreter of these visions. And so he came to Daniel and helped him make sense of what the Lord had spoken. And now here we have the same character from the Old Testament, the same angelic messenger, Gabriel, showing up again, coming to one of God's faithful servants, giving, relaying a message from God. It's a message from God about a baby that will be born into the world. So who is this special boy that Mary is going to carry in her womb and give birth to in nine months? Well, we're told, we're given his name. His name will be Jesus. Jesus is a Greek name. It's a Greek form of a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is Joshua, Yeshua, which translated into Greek is Jesus or Jesus. And the word means, the name means, both Joshua and Jesus mean God saves. That's the perfect name for the one who came into the world to save those who were condemned under God's righteous judgment. We're told that he will be great, that he will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 35 tells us that he will be called Holy, that he will be the Son of God. These are all titles that indicate deity. The Most High, that is a biblical title referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's a divine name. So, as as I've already pointed out, Gabriel is talking about the conception of Jesus in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he's not talking about the creation of Jesus. Jesus is not a created being. He's talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the point in history when the eternal Son of God took on flesh, incarnated. Carne, Latin word for meat or flesh. God took on flesh, incarnated. Gabriel goes on to say that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will be a king. He will reign over the house of Jacob, not just for a while, not just for a few decades, but forever. He will be an eternal king. He will reign forever of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, Mary was most likely not literate. If she was a typical young woman of her place and time, she was probably not literate, but she was devout. She was a pious Jewish girl. She would have known the passage of Scripture that Gabriel is referring to here. Gabriel is referring to the Davidic covenant. This is something that all Jewish people would have been very familiar with. A long, long time ago, God spoke to his servant, King David, and God gave David a promise. That promise was recorded, and it was precious 
to the people of God. God promises David that someday David will have a son who will have a kingdom that will never end. God says to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to be a forever kingdom. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And your throne, David, will be established forever. That's a promise from God to David, recorded in Holy Scripture, something the people of God are counting on, banking on, hoping for, looking for, waiting for, praying for. When is God going to make good on this promise of this forever king in the line of David? The only problem with that prophecy is that by the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, it's been over 500 years since Israel has had a king from the line of David. 500 years, half a millennium. That's a long time to wait for someone to make good on a promise. But the promise still stands. And the people of God know that their God is not a God who makes and breaks promises. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so the people of God are waiting, watching, hoping for the Davidic king to show up and claim his forever throne. And now, Gabriel comes to Mary, quotes the promise that God has given to David, and says, Mary, you are about to conceive, and you will give birth to that boy, the boy that everybody's been waiting for, son of the Most High, son of David, the Messiah, who will come and will make everything right and will reign forever. Now, when we read this interchange between Gabriel and Mary, we're kind of picking up this, this story mid-story, mid-narrative, right? There's a lot of backstory that has taken place, a lot of background plot points that are simply assumed by the time we get to this point in the story, right? So we need to remind ourselves the background of this story that we have joined midstream. The background is this. God Almighty, the one true and only God, created the universe, all of it, all that we see around us, the galaxies, the oceans, the mountains, the animals, humans, all of it. God made it. God spoke it into existence, and he did so for his glory. It was made by him, and it was made for him. We exist, and by we, I mean all created stuff, all material of the universe exists for the glory of God. And it is good. It is good. It was good when he made it. And humanity within this creation, humanity had a special place in the universe because we alone were created in the image of God. Of all created things, humans alone bear the image of God. And therefore, we alone were designed to be in a special relationship with God, our Creator. We bear His image. We are able to be in relationship with Him. But rather than trusting and submitting to His perfect law, which was for our good, we doubted Him. We believed the lie that we knew better what was best for us than He does. We believed the lie that we'd be happier if we simply obeyed our own laws instead of submitting to God's laws. And through one man's sin, death entered the world. Because death and separation from God is the righteous and just penalty for our rebellion against law, death entered the world through our law-breaking. 
So God, being just and righteous, enforced his holy law. He can do no other. He cannot break his own character, and his character is to be just and righteous. And so death and suffering and sadness were unleashed into the creation as a consequence of our rebellion. That's what the sacrificial system is all about, right? If you read the Old Testament and you skip the first part and you jump to the sacrificial system, you'd be wondering, what is all this bloodshed about? What are all these dead animals about? Well, those dead animals and that bloodshed is providing substitutes to pay the penalty on behalf of guilty, law-breaking sinners. But that whole sacrificial system, all the bloodshed and all the dead animals, was just a picture, was a symbol. The blood of a bull can't really pay for the sins of a man. Not really, not in actuality. It's just a symbol. It's a picture. And so here's the problem. In order for our sins to be paid for, we need someone who can represent us. Not a bull, not a lamb, not some other animal, but a human being, someone like us, who can represent us stand for us. We need a human to stand in our place and pay the penalty for our sin. But there is no normal human that can do that because all humans have participated in Adam's rebellion. All humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore every human has to pay for their own sin, and no human can pay for someone else's sin, unless, of course, that person had never sinned, had never fallen short of the glory of God. But who could possibly fit that description? It would have to be someone who's both fully man and fully God at the same time. Fully man so that he could represent humans and fully God so that he could represent God's part of that equation. But how would you ever accomplish accomplish that? How could there ever be a God-man Well, what if you had someone who was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he was fully and completely God, divine, and yet born of a woman so that he was fully and completely a real man, a real human? That would really be the only kind of person who could ever pay the penalty for other people's sins. And that is exactly what we got. That's one of the central plot points to the story of our salvation. If you leave the virgin birth out of that equation, then the whole thing falls apart and you lose the gospel and you lose our redemption. If Jesus had a human dad like everyone else who's ever lived except Adam, then the whole gospel is simply wrong. It's a made-up story that's inaccurate and untrue. This is why the virgin birth matters, because without it, you and I are left standing condemned and under the penalty of our own sins. We needed a God-man to save us. We needed a God-man to represent us and to die for our sins so that by grace, through faith, we can be forgiven and have eternal life. And that is exactly the Christmas gift that God has provided to his people. Okay, so that's the miraculous conception of our Savior Right? Not the creation of our Savior. He's, he's eternal, but the conception of our Savior. And that is why it is theologically important to our salvation. Now we're just going to jump ahead a little bit uh, in the story. We're going to jump precisely nine months ahead and hear about the birth of our Lord and Savior. And so 
We're just jumping ahead to the next chapter in chapter 2 and some familiar words about the birth of our Lord. Luke in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The historical events surrounding the birth of our Savior are important. And the reason they're important is because Christianity is a historical religion, right? Rooted in historical fact, not based on some secret hidden revelation or secret knowledge that someone just heard privately, but it is a faith based on historical facts that can be fact-checked and studied. So, for example, we read about this decree issued by Caesar Augustus. Well, that is Luke, the author, the historian, placing this event within the context of real historical facts, right? Caesar Augustus is a real historical figure. He was born in September 63 BC. His real name was Gaius Octavius. His mom was the niece of Julius Caesar. These are all historical facts. After his great-uncle Julius was murdered, Octavius was named the chief heir. Octavius was five feet seven inches tall. He would have been short in this congregation. He was known to be nice-looking. He was referred to as handsome. But it is also reported, famously, that his teeth were too small and too few. During his reign, Rome was expanding into this massive empire, right? Rome is growing rapidly. And Octavius became known as a very effective and efficient political administrator under this rapidly growing empire. That's not an easy thing to do. You have to be quite talented to be able to oversee an empire. So one of the things that he does is he issues a decree in order to take stock of all of these new towns and villages and cities and citizens that are being swallowed up by the Roman government. Now, he's not doing this because he's just curious to learn the names of his new subjects. He's doing this because he wants an official record of all the people that the Roman Empire has swallowed up, and he wants a record of all those people so that he can tax them. Running an empire is very, very expensive. So he needs a record, he needs to do a registry, so that he can tax. And the way that the registration worked was that everyone had to go to their hometown, which meant not not the hometown where they were currently living, but the hometown of their ancestral heritage. Now that might sound like a logistical nightmare to us today. How many of us are currently living in our hometown? Probably not many. Not our ancestral hometown. 
But remember that back then, most people lived, the majority of people stayed put. And they lived either in or near their ancestral hometown. It would have been rare to move away. So most people didn't have a really long journey to make. They were already living near their ancestral hometown. However, a certain carpenter from Nazareth, for whatever reasons, had a long journey to make. Joseph is no longer living in his ancestral hometown. And so when this decree gets issued, in order for Joseph to be a good citizen and obey it, he needs to make a pretty long journey. Not only him, but he and his betrothed. His betrothed, who is full term with this highly unusual pregnancy, they all need to make this trip. And the most important thing about this trip, as you read it and you read the way that Luke tells it, the most important thing is the city they're heading to. Over and over again, Luke reminds us they're, he- they're not just heading to a random city in the Middle East somewhere. They are heading to Bethlehem, which is the city of David. Over and over again, we're reminded it's the city of David that they're going to. It's the city of David that Joseph's and his ancestral heritage leads back to. Now that fact gets emphasized because, as we've already noticed, the incarnation and the birth of Jesus represented God making good on promises that he had given to David in the Davidic, Davidic covenant. And so Mary and Joseph make it to Bethlehem on time, barely, and shortly thereafter, the baby is born. Now, Luke's gospel contains 24 chapters. It has well over a thousand verses. It's a big book of the Bible, but he, Luke only takes two verses to describe the birth of Jesus. This thing that we celebrate every year when it comes around, the birth of Jesus and Christmas, two verses, that's it. Now, on Christmas Day this year, Lord willing, we'll revisit this birth. Of course, we'll talk about the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day, right? We're going to have the opportunity to consider some of the details of his birth on Christmas Day. But the point of the story, the way that Luke tells us, is not that while this baby was born and it was in a very crowded city and there was nowhere for them to stay and they had to end up staying in very unsanitary conditions, that's all true. That is not the point. The point is that Bethlehem is the gateway through which the Son of God is entering into the world, and he is entering into the world through Bethlehem in order to claim the throne of David and to live forever. He is the Davidic king that we have been waiting for. So as we wrap up this first sermon of Advent, this first step on our Advent journey this year, I want to highlight just two theological implications of this birth. The first, I want to remind us that God is in control of history. God is in control of all of history. And second, I want to remind us that God has entered into history. God is in control of history, but he is not in control from a distance watching from afar and manipulating things from a distance. God is in control of history, and God has entered into history. He's part of it. He's with us. So throughout the whole story, despite the fact that it sometimes looks like humans are calling the shots, it feels like that, it's actually God who's in charge the whole time, start to finish. 
See, God issues a prophecy in the book of Micah, way back long ago in the book of Micah, which said that when the Messiah comes, he will be born in Bethlehem. God's already gone on record saying, this is how it's going to happen. I mean, he, he, he didn't tell us when it's going to happen, but he said when it does happen, it's going to happen in Bethlehem. So, when the fullness of time comes and God sends forth his son, he arranges the historical circumstances such that the Roman emperor, Gaius Octavius, or Caesar Augustus as he came to be known, was going to issue a decree that was going to have the effect of placing Mary in Bethlehem on the night when she's going to give birth to the Messiah, despite the fact that she is married to a man who lives in Nazareth. Now, the emperor has no idea that he's becoming an accomplice in God's plan of salvation. Certainly doesn't know that we'll be talking about him today. He thinks he is in charge. He thinks he is issuing decrees of his own volition. And he thinks the world exists to do his bidding. But as it turns out, God was in charge the whole time. The whole time. This is a good reminder for any one of us who suffers from Octavius Syndrome, or Augustus, as he's better known, Augustus Syndrome. All children go through this. Hopefully they go through it and come out the other side, but all humans, all children, go through Augustus Syndrome, right? Young kids really do think they're in charge of everything, right? The whole universe, they really do think that. They need to be disabused of that illusion, but they think it, right? They're constantly issuing decrees, are they not? Right? They, they, they're convinced that we exist to do their bidding, right? I'm hungry. I want a snack. I don't want carrots. I want fruities. I don't, I don't want to take a nap. I've never been tired in my life. I want to go play, right? That, that's what, that, those are the types of decrees that we heard issued in our house when we had young children. Children need to be taught. They don't know this intuitively. They need to be taught that they are not in charge. They think they are in charge. They need to be taught that they are not. They need to be taught that despite what they think, they don't really know what's best. Not really for their flourishing. They know what they want, but they don't know what's best for their flourishing. And their job, according to the Bible, the job of kids is not to issue decrees, but to obey. To obey. Now, thankfully, most humans grow out of the delusion that we're in charge of the universe. But that illusion of control still lingers. And so we need to be regularly reminded that actually, we are not in control. God is in control. And God does not need our help governing the universe. We are invited to participate in what he's doing. We do have a role to play. We don't just kick back and do nothing. But God has a plan, and God will see that plan through to completion. And we are along for the ride as participants. Despite the fact that I've got some excellent suggestions for God about how he might want to order the universe, the reality is God sees everything perfectly. God has a perfect plan that is unfolding according to his sovereign wisdom. And so I can rest in the fact that even if maybe history in general or maybe my life in particular is not unfolding exactly 
how I would have liked or how I would have chosen or how I would have advised God to do it. Nonetheless, I can rest in the fact that God is in charge and God's will will be done. So requiring all the Roman subjects to register, to, to pay their taxes, that was God's way of getting a Nazarene to Bethlehem in time for the birth of a very special boy. That's theological point one. God is in control of history. His will will be done. That was true in the first century. That is true in the 21st century. I hope that is encouraging for you to think about. Especially when the world in general or when your life in particular feels out of control, it's good to be reminded that it is not and that there is someone who is in control. Second, not only is God in control, but he has personally entered into the story, into history. Before God created the universe, think about this, he knew he knew that humanity would rebel. He knew that sin was coming. He knew that humanity, created in his image and the object of his affection, was going to need a savior in order to be reconciled to him. He knew. The fall did not take him by surprise. It did not catch him off guard. He knew what it would cost him to fix the problem of sin. He knew that he would have to both send and slay his son in order to pay for our sins. And incredibly, I mean unbelievably, he still thought it was worth it. He still decided to do it. And so this short little text in Luke 2 represents the big moment when the Savior of humanity physically arrives on the scene. We needed a Redeemer who could save us from this mess, but tragically, the, the ironic thing is that so many people don't see it that way. They don't acknowledge their need for a Savior. They don't care that God has come in the flesh to save us from our sins. They look around and they assess the mess. They, they agree, all is not as it should be here. All is not well here. There are some problems here. We need to address some things here. But they conclude, okay, well then what we need to do is try harder and do better. We need better programs, more education. We need stable governments. We need democracy. We need education. We need strong economies. We need more tolerance. And then if we get all that, we'll be fine. We just need to work harder at it. Look, those are all good things. Those are all good things. But if those are your solutions to the problem of what is wrong with the world, then you have completely misdiagnosed the nature of the problem. It is not as though we humans are a little sick and we need to be made better. We are dead. Humans are dead in our transgressions and sins and we need to be made alive. We need to be resurrected, not just made healthy again from being a little bit sick, but resurrected from being dead. What we don't need is a self-help program. Dead people can't help themselves. What we need is a Savior who will personally enter into this mess, come and be with us, come and be near us, come and be like us, and come and die for us in order to redeem us. I remember I was speaking with a particularly tender-hearted friend. His name was David. This is back in Wisconsin. You just think of the person you know that has like the softest heart towards people and towards animals and towards everything, just a tender-hearted person. He had just finished building his own home for his family. I was talking to him. He said, uh, 
he was talking that he said that there was this ant infestation outside of his house. It was they were building these ant nests in the sidewalk just outside of his front door. And he was lamenting to me. He was regretting the fact that he was going to have to pour poison on the ants who were infesting the sidewalk just in front of his front door. He said to me, he said, I know I have to kill them. Otherwise, they're going to end up in my house. I know my wife won't appreciate that, so I just need to take care of them. But I just wish I could talk to them. I, I just wish I could explain the situation to them. They don't get it. They don't know that they're in a bad place. They're in the wrong place. They need to be somewhere else. But if I could just tell them to relocate, well, then none of them would have to die. But if I go out there right now and tell them, they won't understand me at all. I'm totally different from them. They won't see me. I don't speak their language. I can't relate to them. And then he said, you're going to think I'm kidding, but he did. He said this. He said, you know what I wish, Jason? I wish I could make myself into an ant. Just for a day. I don't want to be an ant forever. <laughs> Just for a day, I would make myself an ant. And then I would be the right size. And I would, I would know how to speak ant. And I would, I would go to them. And I would explain to them exactly what they needed to do in order to stay alive. I would even help them get there. And as I heard my friend David speak, I couldn't help but think, I bet you are too, of the parallels between what he was saying and what was happening that cold night in Bethlehem so long ago. We, you and I, we humans, have transgressed the boundaries of God's law. He said here and no further, we went further. And now we find ourselves on the wrong side of God's law. And according to the Bible, there will inevitably be a reckoning whereby God pours out his wrath on those who are on the wrong side of his law. But rather than simply standing at a distance, being in control, pouring out his wrath on rebel humans such as myself, he actually became a human himself. He actually entered into his creation in the form of one of his creatures. He entered into history. He came in a form that we could see and that we could hear, that we could understand and that we could relate to. And he explained what went wrong. He explained why we're in trouble. He explained why we're on the wrong side of the law. He explained why we need a savior. He explained how his sacrifice was going to provide a path for our redemption and our reconciliation to God. How he was going to make us part of God's family. What we needed was a savior who would become one of us and enter into the scene and fix things for us. And that is exactly what we got. What we needed was a God who was willing to humble himself and make himself nothing and take on flesh and become a man, but all the while retaining his full deity. And that is what we got on Christmas. And in the weeks to come, we're going to, Lord willing, consider some of the formative events in his life that led up to his public ministry. But for this morning, we can just be thankful that he came. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit, 
we stand before you this morning in awe of your plan of salvation, of the gospel. We thank you that when we found ourselves on the wrong side of your law, having transgressed the boundaries that you gave us, that you did not leave us there, but you came, entered in, came after us, and got us. You sought us, and we are so very grateful for that. There was only one person, one being, that could have done that, and it would have to be someone who was fully divine and fully human, and that is precisely what we needed is what we got. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.